And so reading from Romans 8, verses 18, it says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to the futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope is seen and is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Central family, I miss you guys. Uh, This whole live stream thing is wonderful. I love technology, but I just got to be honest. I can't stand technology. I wish we were back together. I long for the day when I do not have to speak to a camera anymore, when I can give you hugs, when we can fellowship together in person. I hope you're doing well. Uh, I hope you are growing in your faith, that you're spending time with the Lord in his word, uh, that you're staying safe. Just want to tell you I miss you guys. Well, we're going to continue on, though. We keep going with this live stream. It might be going for some time, it seems like. Uh, so we will make the best of it. And, uh, what, of course, what we're doing now, if you, you missed last week, we are doing a series through the second half of Romans chapter 8. And the reason why I want to go through this chapter in particular is because there is perhaps no better chapter in all of the Bible on how to deal with hardship, with difficulty, and with suffering than really the second half of Romans chapter 8. That is really the entire theme of this chapter. And so the Apostle Paul today, the focus today is on how future hope can strengthen us to deal with present suffering. The future hope has the power to give us strength right here and now to deal with present suffering. Some time ago, I brought up an author to you that maybe you've heard his name before or maybe he's new to you. His name is Viktor Frankl. Uh, Frankl was not a Christian at all, but he was an Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist. He also spent a lot of time in a Nazi concentration camp in World War II. He wrote a very famous book called Man's Search for Meaning. And in that book, he talked about the power of future hope. And he said, future hope, if you have this, it, will, has, a, it has a direct link to your body and how your body has the ability to fight disease. So hope is directly linked to physical health. For instance, here's what he wrote in the book. He said this, The sudden loss of hope and courage can have a deadly effect on the body, referring to his time in the camp. He said the prisoner who had lost faith in the future was doomed. He let himself decline and became subject to mental and physical decay. He said you could tell instantly, as soon as a prisoner lost hope in the future, their body would immediately begin to shut down and they would quickly die. So he went on to say this, any attempt to restore a man's inner strength in the camp had first to succeed in showing him some future goal. 
Something in the future that he could hope in, something he could do in the future to sustain him. And if you could get a man or a woman to have this hope, it would have a direct bearing upon their body's ability to fight off various sicknesses. So it's hope of the future that strengthens a person to persevere and to endure through present difficulties and suffering. Now, that's, of course, true for a World War II concentration camp, but that's, that's true of all of life, and we're even experiencing it right now, but, of course, on a far smaller level. I mean, just imagine, for instance, if you learn today that COVID-19 was going to take, say, 30 years before life would go back to any normal. If, if the life that we've had for the last five weeks or whatever it's been, I've lost track now, whatever that life has been, if you had that for 30 years, don't you think you would have great difficulty enduring it? It's the hope that we have in the future of a future when we are no longer stuck in our houses, the hope of a future when we are free that enables us to endure patiently this present difficulty. I mean, of course, what we're longing for is the day when we will finally be free again. I mean, free to give each other hugs, free to actually walk up and give just a plain old handshake, free to be able to have a large wedding and celebrate with food and rejoicing, free to get 500 of us again to gather on a Sunday morning and to rejoice in God. We long for that day to come. It's the hope that is in front of us for the future, and that hope is what keeps us just going in the present and following all the difficult rules that we have to follow at this time. Yet, of course, we know that even when COVID-19 is over, just because that's over doesn't mean that we're going to suddenly have a perfect paradise of a life. There's still much hardship. There is still much difficulty that is beyond COVID because that's just life in this fallen world. So what we need then to get through COVID, but also just to get through all the difficulties, all the sufferings of life, what we need is some sort of a future hope that is so powerful, that is so glorious, that it will enable us to endure anything in this life. Anything, whether it's going to be cancer, whether it's our, the death, our, our own deaths that will inevitably come one day, we need a hope that can sustain us and enable us to endure through anything in this life. And that, my friends, is exactly what our passage is about today. Paul wants to strengthen you with hope so that you can endure anything in this life. And to that end... The Apostle Paul wants us to reflect on three experiences that every person, every Christian knows in particular. Here's the three that we're going to look at. First, the painful groaning. We all experience this. Secondly, the eager longing. And then finally, we're going to talk about the glorious deliverance. Those three experiences. So let's then dive in. Let's look at the first one. I'm simply calling this experience the painful groaning. Paul begins our passage today by saying that if you want this hope that can enable you to endure anything in this life, he says you first have to reflect and think, like we talked about last week, on what's wrong with the world. Why so much pain? Why so much difficulty? Why are we in the middle of a global pandemic? Why do we groan so much? Paul says you've got to, first of all, get a clear answer, a clear diagnosis to the question of what is wrong with the world. And I think this is very important for us in our generation because we're floundering a lot on this. We're floundering in part, I think, because we have come to see and we have come to reject what can only be described as the naive views of 
of our forefathers. When I say the naive views of our forefathers, what I mean is kind of pre-World War II or the generations of the late 1800s, early 1900s, they had a whole view of the world that now has been shown to be incredibly naive. If you go back and read some of these authors, say from the early 1900s, you, you'll actually break out laughing. You'll think, did you seriously think that? Because what you discover is these authors are, are just talking in huge terms. They're going to say things like, very soon humanity is going to solve all of its problems. We are evolving and we're getting better and better all the time. And soon they say, we're going to solve all our problems. We're going to end all wars. We're going to achieve global unity and we are going to usher in a golden age of prosperity for everyone. This is the way that they talked. This is the way that they thought. But then, of course, World War I happened. World War II happened. And all of that optimism was shown to be incredibly naive. And we live in the generation after this. And our generation, I don't meet many people who think we're about on the brink of some golden age of prosperity. Nobody thinks like that. In a post-World War II, post-9-11, ISIS, COVID-19 type world, that's not how we think anymore. We know those views are naive. We have very real fears about the future now. To discover our fears, sometimes you just got to look at the books and the movies of any culture. That's how you can discover how people think. And think about this, are the books, are the movies of our culture, are they about human beings solving all our problems and having a great golden age of prosperity? Is that what our books and movies are about? Not at all. They are usually about the end of the world or about a post-apocalyptic world or about leaving our world and try to find another planet because we cannot solve all the problems in our world. There's tremendous fears. No one believes anymore that we're suddenly going to enter into a golden age of prosperity. So we're not naive anymore. We're facing reality as it is, but we still, we, we need an answer to this. We need a clear answer to what is actually wrong with the world. We, we got to diagnose it correctly, because if you don't diagnose it correctly, you come up with all the wrong cures. Like any doctor, you got to diagnose it correctly, then you can discover the proper cure. So, let's dig into our passage now with that, and let's see what the Bible's answer is to this question of what's wrong with the world. Paul gives the answer, and he begins, just track carefully with me through this passage, it's profound. He begins by talking about the created order. Look with me at verse 22. He says this, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. When Paul's talking about the creation, he is referring here to things like animals and trees, rivers and mountains, planets and stars. And what he's saying right here is that all of creation is groaning. There's a deep groan that runs through all of creation. Why is the created order groaning? The answer, which Paul's now going to go on to say, is because creation is trapped. It's boxed in. Paul's language is, it's in a state of slavery. It cannot fulfill its potential. Look with me now at uh, verse 20. He says, for the creation was subjected, subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. 
So notice that there was a definitive moment in time when the entire created order was, was trapped into a new state, when it was put into a state of bondage. And so what we're seeing here then is that the lions and the eagles, the oceans and the rainforests, they did not want this to happen, not willingly, he says, but it happened. God originally made his creation with the great potential to blossom, to flourish. But this word futility means that now creation is no longer able to receive, achieve its potential. But it's even worse than this. Look at verse 21. He says creation is in bondage to corruption. Bondage to corruption. So despite all the wonders of creation, the glory of creation, all of creation is decaying. It's corrupting, like, like a piece of meat that is left out on the counter, it is gradually decaying. This is what modern science tells us, that the universe is not growing up into greater and greater life, rather it is decaying slowly and moving down towards death. So now here's the question. Who or what did this to creation? Trapped it in, put it in this state of bondage so that it is groaning and it's saying, I want to achieve my potential, but I cannot do this. Who or what did this? Look at the word, verse again. It's saying the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, because, but because of him who subjected it. Who is the him? Is it the devil? No. Nowhere in the Bible does uh, the Bible say that the devil has that kind of power. He doesn't have that kind of power. No, it was God himself who subjected creation. God himself. In Genesis chapter 3, we read, of course, the story about Adam and Eve rebelling against their creator who filled their lives with all kinds of good things. And this great act of rebellion came with all kinds of consequences. And one of those consequences is that God cursed his own creation. You remember this passage in Genesis chapter 3 where he says, now work is going to become difficult. Food is not going to be produced so easily. Thorns and thistles are now going to grow. Death is now going to come into this good order. Things are going to decay. From the beginning then, creation's destiny was tied to that of humanity. So when we fell, we took the created order down with us. That's what this passage is teaching. So bring this together. Why tsunamis? Why COVID-19? Why all of this groaning? The Bible's explanation is that the entire created order is now in a state of bondage to corruption. You remember the language of Ecclesiastes. It was the same thing there, but just different imagery. You remember we said that uh, Ecclesiastes taught that God made his world straight. Straight, like, like an axle on a car, so that when you drive the car, everything runs properly. But when human beings rebelled against God, one of the consequences is that God took his created order that he made straight, and he bent it. He bent it like an axle on a car, so the car can still drive but it does not drive like it is supposed to. All of creation, all of what we're a part of, everything is like Humpty Dumpty in that old children's rhyme, that Humpty Dumpty sat on a great wall, but Humpty Dumpty took a great fall. And ever since Genesis 3, what Paul is saying is that we all groan. All of creation is now groaning. But it's not just creation. 
It's even Christians themselves. Christians also grow. Look, it's, the, it's a parallel. All through this text is creation, and then it's those who love Jesus. Creation, then those who love Jesus. Look with me at verse 23 right now. He says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. What do we do? He says, we groan inwardly. You know, after our dear Janet Leach passed away a few weeks ago, I gave Alex a call right away. We were just reflecting on the many wonderful years they had together, 58 years of marriage and the many good memories that they had. And then we were just talking about the sorrow that he is presently feeling. And I just said to him, Alex, we groan in our bodies, don't we? And with a deep groan in his voice, he said, oh yes, we do. And now, more than ever. It's the painful groaning. We all know this, the groaning in our physical bodies when they don't do like they used to do when they were young. The groaning when someone that we love dies. The groaning that we have when our relationships are strained and things are not working out the way that we want. And of course, the groaning, especially as believers, when we want to love God, but our our minds are sometimes filled with doubts. We don't love him as we ought to. We're committing sins we know we shouldn't do. Oh, how we groan. All of creation groans. And Christians themselves, when they come to Jesus, groan. So take all of this and put it together. Here is the Bible's explanation for what is wrong with the world. It begins with this fact that things were not always this way. Adam and Eve in the garden at the beginning never groaned in the way that we are talking. They did not know this experience which we are calling the painful groaning. They had no concept of this, but their rebellion changed everything. Life in God's world is still filled with many good things, with many things to rejoice in. He has not taken all of that away from us, but amongst all the good stuff, we all know there's always a fly in the ointment. There's always a pebble in our shoe. Things do not work the way that they are supposed to. Now, you might say, well, this is all very depressing. Indeed, it is. But it's also very realistic, isn't it? Notice the biblical authors are not giving us some sort of naive hope like some of our forefathers had. They're not saying to us, oh, humanity's always evolving, and if you guys just work really hard, you will attain paradise and perfection on this earth. There is no naive optimism going on with these biblical authors, and neither is some sort of false comfort or denial of reality. There are are religions, specifically some Eastern religions, that will say to you, all your painful groaning, all your suffering is just an illusion. Oh, the biblical authors don't talk to you that way. They don't say your suffering's just an illusion. It's not really real. No, they're saying it's real. Your groaning is real. All of this is painful. We do not enjoy this. Christianity most certainly does begin on a very pessimistic note. Absolutely it does. It says to us, we cannot fix ourselves because we are part of the problem. Our very hearts are part of the problem. And Christianity goes on to say, oh yes, you should work to make a better world. Of course you should do that. But don't be so naive as to think that if you just work really hard, somehow you're going to regain full paradise on earth and usher in a golden age of prosperity. No. Christianity begins pessimistically, no question about it. 
but it's right in sync with your experience because you know what it means to groan. So that's the first experience. We're moving towards hope, but we're not there yet. We gotta begin by diagnosing the problem correctly. But once we begin to diagnose the problem correctly, now we can start to see the glorious hope. It's going to be so great, it's going to be greater than any other system of thought, any other religion, whatever anyone else can offer, Christianity is going to supersede it. It's going to give us a hope that will make us just stand in awe and say, wow. So let's move toward that now. In the second place, let's talk about a second experience, which I'm going to simply call the eager longing. The eager longing. I get this from verse 19. Look at verse 19 with me. First of all, creation. Notice he says, creation waits with eager longing. And this word is incredible. Uh, It's the word that means like to crane one's neck, to try to see what's coming down the road far in the distance, but you can't quite see it. It means to be up on your tiptoes. You're you're trying to see what is that over in the future? What is that that's coming toward me? And what we're reading here is that creation is up on its tiptoes. Creation is eagerly longing for a specific event to happen. It can't wait. It's filled with anticipation for this event. And it's not just creation, it's also all those who have faith in Jesus Christ. All true Christians are also longing. Look at the second half of verse 23. He says, and not only creation, they're not just, it's not just creation that's eager longing, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we, what's the last words, wait eagerly. Creation groans, we groan. Creation is eagerly longing for something. We are also waiting eagerly for some event to come to pass. A great event. So every true Christian then is also like a child on Christmas Eve, filled with anticipation, can hardly see, so excited because there is something coming that is so glorious that we are waiting eagerly for it. So right away then, we see there are two different ways to groan. That there's a groaning, and of course, many people know what this means. There's a groaning that is hopeless. But then there's a groaning that still understands pain, but it's a groaning filled with hope. There's two different ways to groan. And Paul describes them here. Notice in verse 22, what it means to groan with hope. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together Notice this little phrase, in the pains of childbirth until now. In the pains of childbirth. So think of it this way. The groaning of a woman in labor is a very different type of groaning from that of a man who's maybe been stabbed in the stomach and he's bleeding out and he's going to die. Both are groaning in pain. But there's a very different type of groaning going on. The man is groaning in despair and in hopelessness and leading to death. The woman is groaning in pain, but her groan is not in hopelessness. Her groaning has a purpose. Her pain has a purpose. Her pain is going somewhere. Her pain is eventually going to lead to a great event, which is going to fill her with tremendous joy, which is, of course, seeing her child born and holding her precious baby for the first time. There's a way to groan without hope, and there's a way to groan with hope. And what we're seeing here is that Christianity is very realistic about the painful groaning we have in this life, but it also says there is hope. 
There's hope for you in your groaning. There is something coming in the future that is so glorious that all of creation is eagerly longing for it, standing on its tiptoes. When's it going to happen? Every single Christian is like a woman in labor saying, this is very difficult. I'm groaning. Oh, but I can't wait for what is to come. It's a groaning, but it's a groaning with hope. Now, we should talk about this hope, but I want to pause just for a second because I really want to apply this to us for a moment. We'll talk about what this hope is in a moment, but just think with me about how much further ahead this is than anything else our modern secular culture can offer you. Think about it this way. Do people in our culture today eagerly long for some future event which sustains them through their present difficulties? Does anyone have this great longing saying, I cannot wait for this great thing to happen? No. There is no great future event coming according to modern secular culture and thinking. In our society, the best that people do or the best that they can offer is a bit of optimism. Optimism is very different than hope. Optimism is I hope that the future is just a little bit better than it is in the present. I hope that things get a little better in my lifetime. But it's not an eager longing for something that's going to happen, an event which will change absolutely everything for the better. That's not what people have in our culture today. At best, people are optimistic. But more realistically, most people know, deep in their hearts, unlike some previous generations, that what we're going through with COVID-19 is just another example of what it means to live in a fallen world. That the things we struggle with, COVID-19 might go away one day, but something else is going to take its place. Life always has hardship. Life always has difficulty. And for most average people, there is no eager longing. This was expressed so well by a famous author named Albert Camus. He wrote a very famous novel uh, right after World War II, aptly called The Plague. Fits for that era, fits right now for us. The plague is the story about uh, the city of Oran. And in this city, a plague comes in and people are dying left, right, and center. It's terrible. They're going through kind of what we are going through right now in the world. But the doctors and all the, the leaders of the city, they get together and through a tremendous amount of work, they manage to eliminate the plague. All these rats that had brought the plague into the city, they've gotten rid of them. Finally, they're free. But then at the end of the book, when everyone's rejoicing and everyone thinks there's a great future ahead of us, the main doctor brings everybody from the city together and he wants them to be realistic. He wants them to think clearly. And this is how he ends the book. He says to them, it's only a question of time. The rats will be back. The rats will be back. And Camus' novel was meant to be a statement about life. He's saying, oh yes, we must fight against all the bad things in this world. We must work to make things better in this world. And he was specifically, of course, thinking of Hitler and the rise of of, uh, Nazism in Germany and all these kind of things. He's thinking about this. He's thinking about all the things we need to do. But as he reflected, as a man without any great future hope, he was saying to everyone, you may work as hard as you can to get rid of COVID. You may work as hard as you can to get rid of Hitler. But the rats will always be back. See, Albert Camus is being realistic. He does not have a great hope for the future. He has optimism, 
but he does not have a great hope. And this is the point where we as a generation find us with our post-apocalyptic movies, with our fears of the present, our fears of the future. What we need above all things is a hope, a hope that could somehow change things for real so the rats will not come back. But we first have to diagnose that problem that we talked about. And what we're trying to get to right here, what I'm trying to show you is there is no hope within ourselves. This is the history of the human race. We can do great things, but we cannot ultimately fix ourselves. And so we must look beyond ourselves, and we must look outside of ourselves. This was put so well by a very famous German philosopher named Martin Heidegger. Before he died in 1976, he gave one final interview. He was asked in this interview, if there is anything that philosophy could give us some good reflections on ways to think, or if there's anything human beings could do in order to kind of fix all the problems in this world, and here is what he said. He said, if I may answer briefly and perhaps clumsily, but after long reflection, philosophy will be unable to affect any immediate change in the current state of the world. This is true not only of philosophy, but of all purely human reflection and endeavor. And then he said this, only a God can save us. After a lifetime of thinking, one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century concludes, no human reflection, no human endeavor can ultimately fix the problems of the human race. Only a God can save us. His idea of God was very different from the Christian God, but he's recognizing there's something going on here. We must have an outside uh, force, an outside action, an outside being come in and do something for us because the rats will always be back. We need a God to save us. And friends, this is the hope of Christianity. So having talked about the painful groaning, the experience of the eager longing, now we need to come to the main point, which is to identify what this future hope actually is. So in the third place, let's talk about this. The experience of the final deliverance. The final deliverance. From the moment that Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall in Genesis chapter 3, in that exact day, God gave hope to humanity, hope that he would come and he would rescue his fallen creation. And of course, the Bible story is he does this through Jesus Christ, that Jesus, through his life, his death, and his resurrection, has come to take all that is broken and to fix it, to make it new again. This is why Jesus came. He came to die for our sins so that our rebellion can be forgiven and we can be reconciled to God. He rose again, launching God's new creation. And the great promise of the Bible is that one day he is going to return. And when he returns, he comes to make all things right again. The second coming of Jesus is the final deliverance. The second coming of Jesus is the event of all events. The second coming of Jesus is the great Christian hope. We read here that creation is longing for this day. Look with me now again at uh, verse 19. Verse 19 reads this, "For uh, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the Son's of God. Now that's kind of an interesting phrase. Creation is looking. What are they up on tiptoes for? 
It doesn't actually say the second coming of Jesus. What does it say? Creation cannot wait. It's looking for the revealing of the sons of God. Very interesting phrase that we read there, isn't it? In this moment, Christians are not shown to be who they truly are, which is nothing less than the sons and the daughters of God Almighty. Right now, like Jesus, our true identity is hidden, like Jesus was on this earth. But when Jesus returns, what we read here is that God is going to publicly reveal who his true children are. They will be shown for who they are. We will realize fully who we actually are. And so creation is eagerly longing for that day when God does this. But here's the question. Why would creation eagerly long for the revealing of the sons of God? Well, do you remember what we said earlier on? Creation's destiny is tied to that of humanity. When we fell, creation fell with us. But it also works in reverse. When Jesus returns and comes to renew and to save his people, he also comes to deliver his creation. So the created order itself cannot wait for the day when, God, when Jesus returns and the sons of God are revealed for who they are because on that day, creation will be delivered from its state of bondage. That's very clear in verse 21. Look at 21 with me. Right at the end of verse 20, he says, it's in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So it's like God said back in Genesis chapter 3, it's like God said to his creation, I'm putting you in a state of bondage right now. You're not going to like this, but it's only going to be temporary. On the day when I deliver my children... I will also deliver you. Contrary to what many Christians think, God is not going to destroy his creation at the second coming of Jesus. A lot of Christians seem to think this because of some views that have become popular in the 20th century. But notice right here, why would creation eagerly long for its own destruction? That's not what it's eagerly longing for. What we see here is that creation cannot wait for this future because it's going to enter into a new experience. It's going to obtain something. And what is it going to obtain? Freedom. It's going to be, attain the freedom of the children of God and share in the same freedom that the children of God are going to receive. So God is not going to destroy his creation. No, his creation is good. What he's going to do is to redeem it, to renew it, as Peter says, he's going to purge it with fire, but it's a fire like a forest fire. When a forest fire comes through, it causes a greater amount of damage. It purges everything. But of course, we know that one of the great advantages of a forest fire is the opportunity for new growth. That is what God is going to do with his creation. Think of it like uh, on those TV shows. Our, our family loves these HD, HGTV shows. And the one we're into right now is called Good Bones. Uh, and they buy like the worst possible houses, but the houses have good bones. And then they go and they demolish everything in the house. It's full demolition, except for the bones of the house. And then, of course, as the show goes on, they restore that house, they renovate it, and then by the end, all of us, you're always waiting for that last five minutes when they show the newly renovated house, and every single time, our whole family, and uh, of course, the people who are part of the show, they're just like, wow, I can't even believe it's the same house. 
That is a picture of what it will be like when God renovates his creation. We will look upon the new earth and say, it's earth, but it's not earth. I can't even believe it's the same earth. It's been completely renovated. God will set his creation free. No more cancer in that new creation. No more COVID-19 in that new creation. No more death in that creation. It will be the goodness of the creation that we've always longed for. And so creation is groaning right now, but it cannot wait until the day when God will deliver his children, for on that day, creation itself will also be set free. But it's not just creation. It's also the children of God. Let's look at this last thing here. Notice in verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we groan inwardly in our bodies, but we are eagerly waiting something in the future. We've already been adopted. If you're a Christian, you've already been adopted into God's family, but your adoption is not yet complete. There's a final piece that still has to be put in place. And what is that final piece? If you were to go back to Romans 8, 17, Paul describes it. He says, it's because you're an heir. The final piece is your inheritance. You've been made an heir when you were adopted into his family, but you have not yet received your inheritance. That is what we are eagerly longing for. That is what we're looking for in the future. And there Paul says that we are not just heirs. We are joint heirs with Jesus or co-heirs with Jesus. You know what that means? Uh, think about it this way. Maybe, do you know what a joint bank account is? What does that mean to you? If you said you have a joint bank account with someone, it means that you have a full share in anything in that account. You can take whatever you want out of it. You can put whatever you want into it. You have an absolute legal right to whatever is in that bank account. Being a co-heir of Jesus Christ means this. Listen, you get to share in everything that Jesus inherits. And what will Jesus inherit? All things. For Hebrews 1 verse 2 says, Jesus is the heir of all things. He's going to inherit everything. And you, if you've been adopted into God's family, have been made a joint heir with Jesus. So whatever Jesus gets, you get to share into it. This is why we have such an eager longing. This is the hope that is before us. So Jesus has inherited a resurrection body. God took his body and transformed it into a body that is immortal, that is powerful, that will never die. So also God will take these present bodies, transform them, and give us resurrection bodies that we will dwell in forever with no groaning, no pain, and no death. Jesus will one day fully inherit the earth, and he will reign over it forever and ever. And amazingly, the scriptures say that all of God's children will reign with him. I don't even know what that means, but to reign alongside Jesus, to share in his reign forever, that just sounds pretty incredible to me. And best of all, Jesus was restored to his Father to dwell with him forever. And Paul also says in Romans 8, 17, we are heirs of God. We will inherit God himself. For the final picture in the book of Revelation is that heaven, the place where God dwells, comes down to the new earth and God will dwell with his people forever. So our adoption then 
means that a day is coming when we will receive a final deliverance from everything that makes us groan. Our adoption means that in this fallen creation, we are heirs and one day we will receive our inheritance. What we have learned throughout all of history is that all the king's horses and all the king's men have not been able to put this world back together again. Only a God can save us now. And the great message of Christianity is that one day the God-man, King Jesus, will ride out of heaven with all of his horses and all of his angels and he will come to put this world back together again. He will bring us into a world where we'll never be broken again. That is the great hope that Christianity offers us in Jesus Christ. So now take everything we've talked about and apply it to your own life. Paul has said all of this to give you a future hope so that that hope will strengthen you to deal with present suffering. And and here, of course, is the way that this works. Uh, Let me put it in the words of a famous uh, older pastor, a Scottish pastor named Samuel Rutherford. Rutherford said this. He said, do you feel like you have a difficult life? Do you feel like you've grown? Do you have a lot of sufferings? Do you have injustice that has been done to you? Then he says this, keep a record of it. Write up a bill, a bill that you're going to give to God. I mean, track every single tear you have ever ever shed. Every time you have grown, write that down. Get this bill and fill out every single detail. Keep on going for the rest of your life. It's going to be a very long bill. Every injustice that's happened to you, add it all up. And then he says, give it to God on that great day. And on that great day, God will not only cover every single loss that you've had in this life, he will then go and add to your life eternal joy. Joy that make you just stand in awe and say, in one sense, it was all worth it. This joy far surpasses all of the sufferings of this this present age. And then Rutherford goes on to say this, wait on God's timing. He has promised you future payment. He will deliver on that payment. The inheritance is secure. It's waiting for you. It's going to happen. But right now, you need to patiently endure the sufferings of this present time. Because your inheritance that is to come is so glorious, it'll be worth it. And Rutherford then writes this, He says, when we shall come home and enter into possession of our brother, that is Jesus, our brother's fair kingdom, and when our heads will find the weight of the eternal crown of glory, and when we will look back to pains and sufferings, then, he says, then we will see that life and sorrow, then we will see life and sorrow to be less than just one step from a prison to glory. All of life is just one step from prison to glory. And that our little inch of time spent suffering in this life, it's not even worthy of our first night's welcome home to heaven. A bit wordy, but here's what he's saying. All of this life, all the sufferings of this life, are about just one inch of time in the grand big picture. We will pass through that time, and when we enter into our brother's fair kingdom, just that single first night there, that single welcome home party, will make it all worthwhile. Friends, when this hope fills your heart, 
It gives you the strength to patiently endure even the worst of all sufferings in this life. For then you can say, like Paul, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And so then you can say with Paul that we wait for all of this with patience. Let's pray. So, Father, we do wait We are so grateful for your word which has promised us this great future. And we wait on you now, O God. We wait and we pray, oh Lord, we long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, when we will finally attain our inheritance. When all the groaning will be gone. We we glorify you that we have this hope. That you did not leave us in our sin. You did not leave us in that terrible state, but you sent your son for us to secure all these things for us. Jesus, we exalt you for all that you did to secure this great inheritance and how we long for that day. Give us strength, O God, to endure and to wait for it in the present, for surely we will find our souls to be truly satisfied on that great day. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.